put them all across the hallway, and that was to be a reminder that a whole lot of people in this church are stepping up together to grow up together. Well, maybe you've seen the barrenness of the hallways lately. We've taken them down. And uh, just because they're, they're down does not mean that we stop growing, right? We're going to keep on growing, but everything has its seasons, including leaves. But what I want to do is go through all this growing up stuff that we looked at in 1 Peter. And I've highlighted 10 great lessons that we learned over the last number of months that would, I hope, help us to grow up spiritually. Number one, how to be born again and what that means way back in chapter one. Number two, why it's important to be holy in our lifestyle and not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance or of this world. Number three, the realization that we're each living stones in the spiritual house of God and that we're each to be priests offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. And many of you remember that I gave you the little stone to take home and put it someplace and Mine is still on my desk in my office, and so when I come to work every day, I look at that little stone and say, okay, I'm a living stone in the house of God, and I, I'm going to give him a sacrifice today of praise, which he will enjoy. Number four is how to submit to the authority of the state and to bosses, even if they mistreat us, realizing that we're to follow in the suffering steps of the Savior, a really hard lesson to learn. Number five. If you're a wife, how to submit to your husband. And remember, I came out in a bulletproof vest that Sunday because of the volatility of such a subject. Number six, if you're a husband, how to really treat your wife well so that your prayers won't be hindered. Number seven, how to behave when you suffer for righteousness' sake and for doing good. Number eight, how to live the rest of your life, not for human passions, but for the will of God. Number nine, how we shouldn't be surprised at suffering, but to glorify God and entrust our souls to him, and to learn to say in some way, oh boy, trouble, my favorite. And then number 10, how to understand the ministry of the elders in the church. Now that's a lot of growing up stuff that we looked at, but there's one more thing we need to remember. Going through all those lessons we looked at, there is a common thread. It starts at chapter 1 and verse 6 and goes all the way through chapter 5 and verse 10. It's the major theme of 1 Peter, and it's this, how to get through difficult and lingering suffering in a Christ-like way. All the way from the beginning to the end, he keeps on coming at it. He keeps on pouring it on because it is so hard to suffer and so hard to suffer unjustly. We are slow learners. So he keeps on telling us how to do that through whatever circumstances that we are in. Now, actually, I was a little surprised. I hope you know that when I study to preach, I'm also learning like you are, that I still have a lot to learn, a long way to go. And one of the things I discovered is that I had thought for years that Peter was just this little list that I just shared with you of lesson after lesson. But really... I looked at this as something else, and it has become my opinion that 1 Peter is likely the answer to Job, and that those two books go together. You see, Job poses the question of why the righteous suffer, but he doesn't give a definitive answer. Along comes Peter in the New Testament, and he looks at this problem all the way through the book, and not only does he give us the theology of suffering, he gives us a rubric for suffering. 
Well, enough of review. We're going to end the book right now. To the last segment. And I'm calling this last segment cutting-edge spirituality. Some things in the spiritual life are harder to practice than others. And today we're going to be looking at two things that are really hard to practice. But if we don't get them down, then our spiritual life is not going to be very edgy. It's going to be very routine and maybe religious, but it's not going to be authentic. And when we look at these things, you're going to find out they're not easy. They take some hard, grunt work, and that's what the spiritual life is about. So here's the big idea. Cutting-edge spirituality is cultivated by hard work. And it's hard work that we need to do, not of our own self-effort, but in the power of the Spirit. Because if we don't do the work, the hard work of spiritual growth, we're just going to be like a merry-go-round, going round and round in circles, religious circles, but not really going anywhere. I think we have the idea, though, that growing up spiritually is kind of an easy thing, that if you read your Bible a little and you pray a little and you come to church a little bit and you give a little and you have fellowship a little bit and eat in the um, common grounds, uh, whatever it might be, something to snack, that you're going to grow up. And that is not true. It is a hard discipline and hard things in life that we've got to get done that will bring us into the true likeness of Christ. And so today we're going to look at them head on. We're going to see some of these hard things. And I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God right now as we look at these things. And in the Pew Bible, it'll be page 1017. So would you stand with me? Here comes these two spiritual disciplines. We're going to be talking about humility and warfare as they're cloaked in the reading of the Word. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Folks, what he just said there is not a crash course on churchianity. Churchianity isn't in those verses at all. This is on hard, authentic, cutting-edge spirituality. And there are two disciplines that he addresses here at the end of the book saying, this better be part of your life or you're, you're just going to be religious, but you're not going to be really authentically spiritual. So t- spiritual discipline number one, and here it comes. And we all have a hard time with this one. It is humility, verses 5 through 7. Humility. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but the verse numerations of the Bible were not written that way. In fact, the verses didn't have numbers on them until 1551 when a guy by the name of Stephanus published them for the first time. And then the paragraph divisions, they came later. In fact, Even today, when the translations are uh, put together, they'll make decisions as to where the paragraphs ought to go. And uh, 
even today, this is relevant to the fact of where I begin my text today, because the English Standard Version, the version of our church and the version in the pews, makes the paragraph division where Pastor Chris left off, verse 5. But my Greek text and the NIV, for instance, the New International Version, make the paragraph break at between verses uh, 4 and 5, not 5 and 6. In fact, if you go a little bit further, I make the break in the flow of material in the middle of verse 5. So into the middle of verse 5, you got paragraph 1, and paragraph 2 of chapter 5 begins in the middle of verse 5, so that I think the flow is something like this. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your cares, your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, we're talking about humility, a spiritual discipline that will put you on the cutting edge. And the question is then, what is humility? You better get this. I better get this. And what I've done is I'm going to give you my definition of, of uh, humility and then flesh it out from the Scriptures. Humility, to the best of my understanding, is the taming of our ego. The taming of our ego. You don't tame the ego, you're not a humble person. And our ego is an inflated opinion of ourselves, an exaggerated, exaggerated sense of self-importance and a feeling of superiority to other people. And that's exactly what Peter is talking about, the taming of that kind of ego. Now, as far as I am concerned, the greatest passage in the Bible on the taming of the ego and humility is found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 9. It is so good, so relevant, that I want to read that to you so you get it right, right from the Scriptures. Paul says there, do nothing. That's a pretty encompassing word. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more important or significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, what I'm going to do is highlight the pieces of what humility is from that section of Scripture and then bring it right back to where Peter is in our section. It is both an attitude and an action, and it has seven different parts. Number one, when you are humble, you have to deal with your selfishness and your conceit, verse 3. Number two, when you're humble, you raise others above yourself, verse 3. Number three, when you're humble, you look for the needs of others, not just for your own, verse 4. Number four, when you are humble, you don't make status and position something you grab for, verse six. Number five, when you are humble, you assume the status of a servant towards others, verse seven. Number six, when you are humble, you submit to authority, especially in tough times without bristling, verse eight. 
And when you are humble, excuse me, uh, number seven, when you are humble, you allow God to promote you to status and position when he sees fit and not you, verse nine. That, my friends, is the essence of humility. And that's what Christ modeled. That's what Proverbs, Paul, James, and Peter call us to. And the reality is this, when it comes to humility, none of us are good at it. (laughs) We all have trouble with humility. But if we're going to get to cutting-edge spirituality, we have got to deal with our ego. Now, there's an interesting word that Peter uses to tell people that they are to be humble. He says in verse 5, clothe yourself with humility. That word clothe yourself, they would have jumped on immediately. They would have understand something we don't understand because we don't read the Greek and live in that culture. But for them, that word clothe yourself would have had the idea of putting on a servant's apron because they called a servant's apron by the name that comes, by the word that comes out of the word clothe yourself. And so immediately they would say, Peter is saying, put on the apron of humility. That's what we wear every day. And in their minds would have been, put on the servant's apron, serve each other, stop thinking you should be served or you're too good to serve somebody else. Put on that apron. And we have to understand that's what we need to do. So, what is the opposite then of being humble? It is being proud. It's having a big ego. And are you ready for this? I love the frankness of the Bible. Verse 5, look at it. So you're not humble, you're proud? It says God opposes the proud. Whoa. We need to understand that. If we refuse to put on the apron of humility, God opposes us. He works against us. And I can tell you the reason he does that, because he knows we have to be brought down a couple notches. And he opposes us in order to bring us down so that someday he may bring us up. He opposes us. But God will have no rivals. And we have to understand that. And when we have a big ego, God is not for us and we have a problem. I used to ask my students at Gannon University, uh, what is a big ego and who has one in the celebrity world? And they would talk about ego, and then they would give me this list of people, I've got four names here, where they said that uh, these people have big egos. One of them is Donald Trump. Do do you think he has a big ego? He has more hair than I do, but I also think he has a big ego. Uh, And then Kim Kardashian and Lindsay Lohan and, and Charlie Sheen, people like that. You know what's easy for us to do? They got the big ego. Mine's the small one, so God's against the big ego. My little ego, he doesn't care. Wait a minute. God doesn't go around comparing big egos to little egos and say, you got the big ego ego over here. Too bad I oppose you. You got the little one. You're okay. God says, I oppose the big ego, period. He is against the proud. And I would probably guess that most of us have a problem dealing with our ego, so we have to understand who we're wrestling with. But the interesting thing is that when we come to humility, the verse says that God rallies around the humble and gives them grace. Now, I love what, verse, what Peter says in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Here's the problem. Proud people think their hands are mighty, 
Proud people think that they are in control. Did you know that one of the biggest myths of life is that you have any control whatsoever? Did you ever come to the conclusion that you don't have control? I mean, we are really wrong on this. And the proud people think that they can do things with their own hands and order their own world. And uh, they're totally, totally mistaken on that. There is, you just can't do that. And so those mighty hands that we think we have need to be humbled. And first Peter, Peter says in verse 6 that God's hands are the mighty hands. And we got to stop getting out of the way and, and thinking we've got the mighty hands. And if we allow that God has the mighty hands, here are two things that he wants to do for us with his mighty hands. And what it takes for that to happen is we've got to get out of the way and kill or slay our ego. The first thing he does with his mighty hands is in verse 6. He exalts us. It's his job to make us look better in the world or in other people's eyes or wherever it may be. Not our job. People go around in image management all the time trying to make themselves look so good and raising their stature and status among people. And that is God's job. It says that when Jesus humbled himself even to the death of the cross... He didn't even exalt himself. The Father raised him up and exalted him to a position above every name. And it's something like this, this exaltation that I'm talking about, where you don't do what other people do, where you don't do what God does. I don't know if you remember the blackout in 2003 in August. Anybody remember that? Up in Erie, we had one. All the way from Cleveland, that grid all the way to New York City. And that happened on a Thursday. And we were supposed to go the next day to New York City on a four-day vacation with a few of our family. But we went anyway, and finally the power came back on. And part of our itinerary was on Saturday to go to the Empire State Building. We got to the Empire State Building, and you wouldn't have believed. The line went for blocks. And we said to each other and our family, you know what? If we spend hours and hours, they said it's six hours till you get in there. We're going to trash a lot of the other things. I don't think we're going to go up and see the city. About that time, I happened to see a sign by the elevator in the Empire State Building and said, Basement, the King's College. The King's College? I knew about the King's College. It used to be in Briarcliff Manor, New York, and the president I used to know, Dr. Bob Cook. And I said, well, isn't that interesting? Well, we might as well get some redemption out of the Empire State Building. We'll go down instead of up. And we went down to the King's College, and I met the receptionist there. I said, wow. I used to know you guys when you were back at Briarcliff Manor, New York, across the river, was Nyack College, and you were great rivals and everything, and Dr. Bob Cook, and he says, Dr. Bob Cook, you knew Dr. Bob Cook? I said, yeah, a little bit. He said, whoa, guess what? I've got something just for you. It's a VIP pass, and when I'm going to take you to a special elevator, and you're going to get on that elevator, and you're going to go to the top of the Empire State Building right now. And I didn't do one thing. Suppose I went to that reception and said, you know who I am? I'm older than you. And I remember when you, when you were in your diapers where, where the uh, King's College was, and I used to know the president. And I'm currently the pastor of Grace Church, and I will be the interim senior pastor of Old North and Canfield. Do you know who I am? Well, get me to the top. How far would that have gotten me? Nowhere. She exalted me. She took us up the top. And you know what Peter is saying? Let God exalt you. You can't do it for yourself, but God under his mighty hand will exalt you in due time. Well, that takes us to the second thing God will do with his mighty hands. Verse 7, if we humble himself, God will take care of us. Most of us haven't figured out that. We try to take care of ourselves with our own self-effort and doing everything we can to earn the money and, and, and to, to do this and to do that and... 
we worry so much about how we're to be uh, where we ought to be and so forth. And proud people think they can take care of themselves. And God says, you know what? That's a stupid thing. You can't really take care of yourself. The world is too mean and nasty and life is too hard. Let me take care of you. But you've got to humble yourself first. And the reality is, when you think you can take care of yourself and you're that proud to think that, then you don't need God. You don't need God. There's no reason to trust him. It's when the humble person says, God, life is out of my hands. I can't control things, and life is too tough. I know that you are more powerful than me by far. I turn over my life to you, and if I humble myself, you will take care of me. And those who try to take care of themselves, do you know what eventually happens to them? They stress out. They worry. They get depressed. They are angry people. And God is saying, come on. Just hand it over to me, humble yourself, and stop trying to be God, and I will take care of you. I learned this lesson in a profound way 20 years ago. I was in ministry at that time, and a big pile of stuff was coming my way, and I didn't think I could handle it. And I had thoughts about getting out of the ministry when I came across this article that changed my life. This article was talking about the difference between the warehouse and the warehouseman. And he was saying that God is the warehouse and we are simply warehousemen and that we aren't supposed to take all this stuff onto ourselves and keep it there. The warehouseman doesn't take all the goods and store them in his house. He takes them to the warehouse. And it's time, he said, that we need to learn that when we take our problems and our water on, so to speak, and all these things that would take us down... All we are is a warehouseman to take all that stock and put it in God's warehouse. And guess what? God's got a big warehouse. (laughs) We'll never fill it up with our problems. And God says, I will take care of you. And from that day on, and I promise I'm not that good every day. I have some failings yet along these lines. But most of the time, when life comes at me and it's like a flood of things coming and I think I'm not going to handle this, I say, oh, wait a minute. I'm not supposed to put this in my own warehouse. I'm not supposed to carry all this by myself. And so I take that issue. I take that problem. I take that concern. I say, okay, God, I humble myself. It's yours to deal with. Thank you. And I feel so much better. we got to learn that we got to humble ourselves and let God take care of us. And the first spiritual discipline that we're talking about right now is humility that allows God to do his job while we do ours, and that is turning it over to him and allowing him to do the things that only he can do. But there's a second spiritual discipline, and we're calling it warfare. And if you don't know much about warfare, you're already falling behind. You're already in a lot of trouble. I want you to understand what warfare is about, and Peter's talking as he ends this epistle about the warfare that is real, that we have to understand, that we have to engage in, and that we have to be victorious about. And so warfare is how we deal, basically, with the devil. And verses 8 and 9, Peter says to Old North Church, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brethren around the world. According to a Gallup poll a few years ago, it says that 70% of Americans believe there's a devil. 
I'd be shocked if that many believed in the devil, the Bible, but there are a lot of people who say they believe in the devil. For me, I want 100% of Old North people to believe that there's a real devil. Because if you don't, you're already way behind in the battle that you're waging. Peter says here, in no uncertain terms, the devil is real. He wasn't talking figurative language. Say, oh, there's an evil force out there. The devil is real. In fact, I've got a sermon in my study. It's got three points. Who the devil is he, where the devil is he, and what the devil is he doing? And basically, that's what Peter's talking about here. Who is this devil, and what is he doing? Verse 8 says, he is our adversary. Do you know what adversary means? Our worst enemy the one who's out there all the time to oppose and attack us. He uses another word here, devil, diabolos in the Greek, diabolical in English, slanderer. He's out to destroy us in any way he can, even down to our reputation. But it's not just about who Satan is. It's what he's doing, how he, how he wages war. Verse 8, we get a description of his activity and his aim. It says he's on the prowl. He wants to destroy us. And the word that Peter uses there is the word devour. And when you have the idea of devouring, it isn't tearing us apart. The word here means to swallow, like the great fish swallowed Jonah. And the roaring lion, Satan, is going around and say, who can I have for lunch today? I'm going to swallow that person. He is out there to, to, to do anything he can to destroy us. So, if you are a Christian who likes to hang on the edges who likes to sin a little bit, who doesn't like to be in the fellowship of God's people, and who are kind of lazy and sleepy, he's got his eye on you in particular because he knows that the people on the fringes are the easiest prey. And he's out there looking as a ferocious lion trying to deal us deep wounds. And we've got to be aware that we are targets. We are targets. Whether we're in the middle of the flock or on the outside, and we need to know how to wage successful war against our enemy. And Peter gives us three tactics. Tactic number one, stay alert, verse 8. The devil is looking for people who are sleepy. The people that drop their guard, the devil is looking for because he knows how easy it is. And I want you to know that there isn't a single person in Old North Church that isn't in his crosshairs. Not me, not you, every one of us. He's, he's looking and sizing all of us up and he says, Peter, be sober, be alert, be watchful, don't go to sleep. Now, after I preach today, I'm getting in a car, and I'm going to travel towards Philadelphia for vacation. I'm going to end up soaking in some rays on the beach in Ocean City, New Jersey, for five days this week. Um, and if you're envious, that already means the devil's looking for you. Because No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. But you know what my temptation is going to be today? As I get on the interstate, having preached two sermons, using adrenaline, it's not going to be a stay alert. I'm going to start, do you ever wonder where in the world you've been for about a mile and you finally come to say, you know, I've been kind of, you know, not alert here? All the devil needs is for you to get in the highway of life and go asleep for a half a mile. And he's right there. He's chasing you down. And Peter says, you've got to stay alert. You've got to stay sober. And you know, the moment you start resenting somebody or murmuring, complaining about things or resorting to sinful behavior, uh, not taking on the apron of humility, we let down our guard and he moves into our direction and he comes with his roar. Now, Satan is a deadly spiritual foe. His goal is to disable you. His goal is to destroy you. 
He wants you to live in sin and defeat. He wants to ruin your peace of mind. He wants to ruin your relationships, if he can, to ruin your health. And he's good at all of this stuff. For after all, we've had maybe 20 to 90 years of practice. He's had thousands of years of practice, and he knows exactly what he's doing. And we've got to stay alert. We've got to take precautions. But here's the second tactic. Resist the devil, verse 9. Resist the devil. Resist means to withstand. It means to stand against. It means that whatever the devil sends your way in the power of God, and we're going to talk about that, you are going to be the last man standing. Doesn't that sound good? Not him. And so Peter is saying, he doesn't have to have victory over you. You can resist him. Now, I love the fact that Peter's not the only apostle who talks about this. James also talks about the same terminology, James 4, 7. James says, resist, same word, the devil, but he adds a phrase I love. Resist the devil and what? He will flee from you. Do you realize that if you are able to withstand the devil with the things I'm going to be talking about in just a minute, we puny people that we are can send him on his way and he will not have the victory? I just love that. We have power, incredible power, for as weak as we are, we can have the power over him. And so the question comes, well, how do we resist the devil? How can we in our weakness resist him? Well, we get the first clue in verse 9. It says, be firm in your faith. And so when you are under attack, it's not a good idea to say, hmm, I wonder if the Bible is really true. I wonder if God's really going to come through for me. I wonder this. I wonder that. This is not the time to wonder about your faith. When it comes to spiritual warfare, this is the time to say, I believe God is there. I believe in God's power. I believe the word of God. I believe that I'm going to have victory. The word of God assures me of these things, and this is not the time to cave in. And if you come with that kind of resolve, then you can get to where I'm going to be right now and some tips on how to withstand the devil and resist him. Here are six of them quickly. Number one. When he attacks, speak forth the word of God against the devil. There are appropriate scriptures for every temptation you're going to have. And just with, as with Christ, when he was tempted by Satan, what did he do? He pulled out the sword of the spirit and he did battle with the devil. And it says the devil left him. And the same thing can happen to you. Number two, when you are under attack, pray like Jesus in the early church. They prayed for power over temptation and the devil. And if you find your knee, yourself on your knees in passionate prayer in times of testing and temptation, the devil will flee from you. Number three, put on the full armor of God described in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12 through 18. You don't have that on? Sorry, he's going to swallow you. And so it's so important. It says to stand in this armor, we can have victory. Number four, praise the Lord when the devil attacks. Not necessarily for the attack, but say, God, you are so awesome. You are so wonderful. I'm going to praise you. I'm going to think about who you are. I'm going to turn on Christian music. I'm going to praise you. The devil will flee. Number five, get help from your friends. Do you know when you're vulnerable? When you live in a little secret of things you shouldn't be living in with nobody there on your team, you are particularly vulnerable to the evil one. But when you are able under attack to let that be known with a few people around you and you are able to stand with somebody, you are much more likely to stand against the devil and have the victory. And number six, refuse to sin when tempted. Hey, we've got a choice to make. 
We've got a power on our team. We've got the word of God. We don't have to give in to those sin. We can come against the devil and have victory over sin. And that's the essence of what resisting him is, that I'm going to stand against this sin and I am not going to fall. Now, of course, you don't do that with pride because the Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12 and verse 13, that if you think you stand, you're going to fall. So, that tactic of resisting the devil is so important. Here's the third tactic. Endure suffering. We are people who hate suffering. We don't like it. We want it to be over. We want to get on with our lives. So verses 9 and 10 tell us to endure suffering. And here's what Peter says. Basically, when you're in the middle of suffering and it won't go away, know that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not alone. Endure it because something good will come from it. Now, in this section, Peter ties the suffering, a lot of it, directly to Satan and his attack. And perhaps you'll remember that's exactly what happened in the book of Job. Satan went to God and said, can I afflict Job? And God said, you can, but you can't kill him. And then Jesus said of Peter that Satan has desired to sift him as wheat, to really wreck him over the coals. And Peter's saying, hey, guys, that happened to me. That's why I'm writing to you. I know that Satan wants to sift you. It's a hard thing. Your suffering is going to be felt for a long time, perhaps. What do you do? And so Peter is saying, you've got to stand there. You cannot let suffering that Satan sends get the better of us. Many times we think we're the only people suffering. But the word of God says that no temptation has come upon us but isn't common to man. Other people have had it. And Peter goes and says around the world, Christians are suffering all over the place. You aren't unique. And so we belong to a fellowship of suffering people so that the marks of Christ can be formed in us. And how does that happen? As we are able to endure our affliction that Satan brings our way. And the reality is... Most of us will never suffer as deeply as our brothers around the world are suffering right now. And even though we have pain, our pain isn't as bad as theirs. And Peter is saying, wait a minute, you can hang in there. Now I know that not everybody suffers well. And I know there are some people who have even abandoned their faith in suffering. But may it not be of you. May it not be of me that it is said he couldn't come through well. Because I want you to see verse 10. If you are able to endure suffering, look what Peter says. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And I believe that to my core. And I don't want to lose what God wants to do in my life because I wimped out in suffering. So there you have it, the book of 1 Peter. And he closes by saying, if you want to live on the edge of cutting-edge spirituality, it's going to take two things. It's going to take humility, and we're going to struggle with that. And it's going to take warfare. And many of us don't even know about that. And so humility and warfare is what will propel us to the cutting edge of spirituality. And I ask you, as I close, how humble are you? Where are you in the spiritual battle? Because I know this much after 40 years of ministry. Many people in Christianity are not at the cutting edge. They are kind of in the religious camp of 
just getting by and not really having a vital relationship with the Lord. I don't want that for you, and I don't want that for me. And so I'm closing right now with an invitation. I'm just wondering whether God has spoken to anybody and said, you know what, I have to deal with some issues of my humility. And I've got to deal with some issues of warfare. And today I want to do that. I want to take a next step. And if you are willing to take that next step, come to the front. I want to pray for you. And some of you, by doing that, will will deal a death blow, not only to pride, but to the devil for today. And you will take the next spiritual step. So would you please stand with me? As our musicians come out right now, they're going to sing a song that I think is great for what we're going to do. And if your heart is pounding and you realize the Spirit of God has spoken to you some way and you need to take an issue to to the mat today, I'm going to ask you to step forward and then I'm going to pray for you. And this will be a day of spiritual victory. You come at any time while we sing.